Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20? And let's read, starting at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, my translation, I don't know what happened to the translators. They may have gone out for coffee or they may have fallen asleep. To care for the church of God. Why they would do that, I don't know. It's to shepherd the church of God. Which that just weakens the translation so much. Which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish each one with tears. That's as far as we'll get tonight. We come now to the first exhortation of the address. Up until now, Paul has been presenting his example. And that's why he said all the way back in verse 18, you yourself know how I lived among you the whole time from the first time I set foot in Asia. So up until now, he has been reminding them of his ministry and what he did. They are to imitate that. But now he comes to a direct command to them. And so we call this pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, it cannot be emphasized enough the theological and practical importance of this apostolic prophetic charge. History can be explained as a result of this passage, the refusal to guard the church from wolves who have ravaged 2,000 years of church history. Now, he does something here that might just be a little um, uh, difficult, or not difficult, but surprising to us. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, <clears throat> we might think what he should have said is, pay careful attention to the flock. It's not what he does. Do you notice what he does? Pay careful attention to yourselves. Isn't that interesting? How do you care for the flock if you don't know how to care for yourself? This is often called soul care. Um, some call it self-shepherding. Pay careful attention to yourselves. The idea here is strict attention uh, to your own spiritual life. The verb is an imperative verb of command. The tense is a continuous action tense. In other words, he's saying something like this. Keep a constant watch over yourselves. Don't be inattentive or preoccupied with other things. Be watchful. Be attentive. Be on guard. In the busyness of life, it's very easy to neglect our own spiritual walk with Christ or to allow sin to, as the writer of Hebrews says, wrap itself around us, to encompass us. So what he's saying here is look out for your spiritual growth, your daily walk with Christ, your moral integrity, your biblical and theological beliefs. Now, Richard Baxter, in his very famous book, The Reformed Pastor, which has nothing to do with Reformed theology, it means the pastors of his day needed urgent reform. They were, they were not doing their job. And he wrote this very famous book, The Reformed Pastor, calling on pastors to wake up and to do their job. In that book, he has a section, A Special Eye on the Leaders. Satan has a special eye on on the leaders. Here's what he writes. <clears throat> Take heed to yourselves, using this passage, because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you. He knows what devastation he is likely to make among the rest if he can make the leaders fall before their eyes. He has a long practice fighting, neither against great nor small comparatively, but against the shepherds of the church that he might scatter the flock. Take heed then, for the enemy has a special eye on you. You are sure to have his most subtle insinuations, incessant solicitations, and violent assaults. 
Take heed to yourselves, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are, and a more nimble disputant. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. We've seen this in the last 10 or 15 years. How many top-notch, well-known Christian leaders have fallen. Paul says, take heed to yourselves. There's a war out there. Ephesians 6 makes it very clear that we are involved, engaged in spiritual warfare against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle is real. And the devil has a special eye on the leaders, on the shepherds, because if he can take them down, he can take many others with him. So I want to appeal to all of you to remember, your first duty is to guard your spiritual life. Sometimes people ask, what do elders do? What should they be doing? The first thing is guard your life. Guard your walk with Christ. Be careful of sin. Be careful of allowing those weaknesses to take you over. Those fatal flaws that will trip you again and again. That's why prayer is so important. Time of meditation in the Bible. I have found one of the greatest helps in my personal walk with Christ is my dear and close colleagues and friends. Been one of the most encouraging things in my life, outside of my wife, of course. She gets first credit for everything. She has made me the man that I am today. And my mother-in-law is totally surprised. We need colleagues. We need friends. We need people we can talk about the battle together and talk about some of those internal issues that just drive us crazy. So having good Christian friends that you can share your life with and your struggles with is an enormous help. We are in a real war. This is not a joke. And the enemy is fierce. And he does have a special eye on you. But we've been given the resources to stand against him. In fact, Paul says that in Ephesians 6. Stand strong. Stand straight. Put on the full armor of God. By the way, the last thing he says, and it's not armor, is about prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with perseverance. Prayer is the great tool we have to stand against our fierce enemy. Now, the next thing he says is first, oh, by the way, this is a plural. It may very well be that he's including all the elders. In other words, pay careful attention to yourself, but he says yourselves. So it appears to me that we can apply this to the eldership itself. We elders care for one another. We watch over one another. We tell one another, you need a break right now. You're too busy. You're too interested in this person of the opposite sex. We need to help one another endure and fight the fight. The second thing he says is pay strict attention to all the flock. Pay careful attention to all the flock. Now, the church, there are many metaphors for the church. Many. I don't know the exact number because there's disagreement on that. But one of the metaphors for the church is that we're a flock. We could be a flock of sheep or very often it's a flock of sheep and goats together. Both are mixed. And one of the things you learn from this metaphor is ownership, dependence, value. And in this context, the continuous need for protective care. Now, a flock, we often talk about how dumb sheep are. But in the ancient world, a flock of sheep and goats was very, very valuable. They were valuable for wool and milk and cheese and meat and bones and skins for leathers good. A flock represented value. And what makes this value, this flock exceedingly valuable is that's the flock of God. It's precious to him. He bought this flock. He owns this flock. He cares for it and he loves it. It's of great worth to him. And he expects those who shepherd his flock to give their life for the flock. 
and to do the job. Pay careful attention. The well-being of a flock depends on the careful attention and skill of the shepherd. Shepherd elders are charged by Paul, pay strict attention to the flock. Do not neglect them. Now notice he says the little word, all. All the flock. Not just your friends, not just your relatives. Every member. Some of the members are not so nice to be with. Some of the members attack you. Sheep kick and they can really hurt. But you're to pay attention to all the flock. They're all precious and valuable in God's eyes. Now as we add this up in a few moments, this is some of the great motivation for doing the job. It's God's flock, God's people. They're of infinite value to Him. And that's how we need to see the church. Yes, church work is very hard. Sometimes you wonder, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? Giving all my time to these people and helping these people and teaching these people and rebuking these people and going out with them and spending time with them. Well, they're of infinite worth to God. That should help us. That should help us. Now, Paul is a great motivator of people and he knows we need motivation. And so, he next deals with the vital important reason for guarding God's flock. Notice what he says in verse 28. One of the most important verses of this whole section. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So, we need motivational reasons. So let me give you an example. We have a, a little, it's a small pond. It's not a lake, but we call it a lake. Colorado, uh, uh, something as big as this building is a lake. Here you wouldn't even consider it a lake, you know, something you'd step in. But anyway, the people come and they feed the ducks. They, they come with bags of corn, literally, I'm not exaggerating. Bags of corn, they like to feed the geese and feed the ducks, and, but it's very bad for them. So they have the sign up, uh, don't feed the ducks. Does, it's like people, don't, they come out with their, their bread, their all kinds of junk food and stuff. They feed them tootsie rolls and whatever they'll eat. So anyway, finally the city got smart. And the city put up a sign, and the sign says, don't feed the ducks. And they listed five reasons why you shouldn't feed the ducks. They'll, they'll, they'll ruin their migration. Uh, it ruins their digestive system. They won't eat the food they need. And they listed these reasons. Well, guess what happened? I didn't see people feed the ducks for a very long time. Why? They gave them reasons. They didn't just say, don't feed the duck. Don't feed the ducks because you're really hurting them. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. Shepherd the flock of God. Pay attention to the flock. Now, here's the reasons. Here's the reasons. And they're powerful reasons for why we should devote our life to other people and to God's people and to God's flock. First reason is the Holy Spirit's appointment. It was the Holy Spirit of God who made these men overseers for the purpose of shepherding God's flock. It was the Spirit's doing, the sovereign Spirit's empowered, motivated, and gifted these men to be overseers for the purpose, and that's the purpose infinitive, to shepherd. These elders are overseers by divine placement, initiative, and design. The only elders we want are those the Spirit of God has led to do this job. You'll have people who want to be elders because they like position. They like to make decisions. They like titles and name. But they're usually not God's shepherds. The only elders that you want are those who have been led, motivated, touched by the Holy Spirit to do this job. And that's a very good thing you can say to someone who says, I want to be an elder. You have every right to say, we don't see the Spirit of God leading you to do much of anything. But you will have men that like position. Or you'll have people who are self-deceived. They think they're a big shot or they think they're a big speaker and they're not. They cause a lot of trouble in churches and they force their way into the leadership. Well, you can stop them and say, we do not see the Spirit of God working in your life as a leader in this church. You have every right to say that. There should be some evidence that the person is being led by the Holy Spirit. By the way, it's interesting in the book of Acts how much the Holy Spirit is all through the book of Acts. Did you ever notice that? The Acts of the Holy Spirit, someone have said. The Holy Spirit not only propagated the church and moved it throughout the empire and, and led to the development of Paul and the other apostles, but to the very 
elders of the local church. So the Holy Spirit is involved in these matters and very importantly involved. Now he says here, the Holy Spirit made you or placed you, some have appointed, as overseers, a very, very important word. The Greek word for overseer, as you know, is episkopos. It's a well-known, commonly used designation for various kinds of officials. The word conveys the idea of one who watches over, a superintendent, an official guardian. It's interesting, it doesn't use really religious words. Nothing religious about this word. It'd be just like the word superintendent. The Holy Spirit made you a superintendent, made you a supervisor. Now, this seems to go along with the whole idea of shepherding. A shepherd is an overseer, oversees sheep. Now, the same people called elders are also called overseers. Now, let me just give you a little warning here because it can really get confusing. Some of your Bibles will say bishop. Maybe you see that in your Bible. Or you'll see it in commentaries. The Holy Spirit made you bishops to shepherd the church of God. Nothing can confuse the situation more than translating this as bishop. Because the word bishop today means someone who is over other pastors and clergy and over other churches. They're, they're in charge of a whole um, area of, uh, of environment for that church. Also, the whole idea of bishop was this whole idea of apostolic succession. If you see in a commentary, if you see in any book, and it's still done, I don't know why they do it, they put the word bishop here. It totally changes the idea. The way to translate this is superintendent, overseer. Overseer is probably the, the simplest and the clearest. Now, my translation has overseer. The Holy Spirit placed you as overseer's purpose to shepherd the church of God. Now, this term overseer is another term for elders. We're not going to take the time to go through this. It's pretty well understood today. But Paul called and summons the elders of the church. And then he tells them the Holy Spirit made you overseers. So it's one of the many proofs that overseers, elders, same people. There's not someone different here. These aren't the bishops over the elders. That's just absolutely confusing. So be careful of that. And I still see in commentaries them calling these men uh, uh, bishops. Now, the purpose, the purpose is to shepherd. Also, I want you to notice it's plural. Did you notice that? Didn't make one overseer, but overseers, plural. Elders came, plural. There are many reasons for the plurality of leaders. One is Jesus gave it to us. Did you know that Jesus Christ established plurality of leadership in the 12 apostles? This is one of the biggest fights I've had with my book. People are absolutely convinced one person needs to be in charge of the church. But that's never brought up in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is always plural. A local church should be governed by a plurality of elders or plurality of overseers. There's many reasons for it. I cannot go into all these side, side trails here. But if you look at this particular context, wolves, shepherding, I would just say this. More eyes, more ears helps people be better shepherds. A very practical reason for the plurality of overseers is for better protection of the local church from fierce wolves. Having multiple elders will provide more eyes, more ears for seeing and dealing with this threat. The great enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is the false teacher. And if you have only one leader, well, that leader could cower, couldn't he? Or the leader might not see it. But when you have multiple eyes, multiple ears, and every elder is different. Some elders are very keen doctrinally. Some elders are very keen pastorally or outreach-oriented. Each elder contributes a special gift to the eldership. And some elders are very keen in discernment and seeing false teachers. Others are very courageous 
and will take action. It's amazing how passive many men can be in these areas. That's how false teaching spreads. Very, very passive. They won't deal with sin. In fact, at the conference we just came from, a number of men came up and talked to me how they can't get the church to judge sin. Out and out, blatant sin. Oh, no, no, it'll hurt the church, divide the church. You need courage. To be a good overseer, you need to have, a, a, like a David. Remember when David, he, he fought the lion and the bear. Now, if I saw a bear coming at me, I'd run. See a lion coming, I'd run. But you know, he took the, the sheep out of the, the, the mouth of the lion and the bear. What does that take? Courage and faith. That's why when he saw Goliath, he said, what's the problem? I have faced lions and bears. This guy, he's defying the living God. Look, don't worry, I'll take care of him. Faith, courage. All the army there, like a bunch of cowards hiding. So, God gives us a plurality of overseers, a plurality of elders for the protection of the church. It is so much better than one man rule. Because every person has fatal flaws. And if you have only one man, those fatal flaws come out real quick. And that's why a lot of pastors don't last more than two to five years. Because people, after about two years, they go, oh my, what do we hire here? We're a plurality of elders. We all come with weaknesses, but we all come with strengths. And we balance each other and we, and we, and we produce a nice protective wall for the church. Which is what this passage is about. Protection from wolves. Now, what are they to do? They're to shepherd the church of God. Now, again, I cannot go into uh, all that is involved in shepherding, but I'll just say four things very quickly. When the apostle says to the overseers, the Holy Spirit placed you as overseers for the specific purpose to shepherd God's flock. Shepherd has four concepts. Number one, feeding. No food, no flock. That's the first job of a shepherd. That's the first job of the elders, to see that the flock is taught the word of God. Okay, let's get that straight. Second job, protection. Shepherds must protect the flock because flocks are constantly, get this, constantly under danger from wolves, lions, bears, thieves, constantly, and they can't protect themselves. It's one of the only animals that has to have humans in order for them to survive. Without people, there'd be no sheep or goats on the earth today. They'd have been eaten long ago. Second job is protection, guarding. Now, out of the four aspects of shepherding, this is the one emphasized in this passage. Guarding, shepherding, because wolves are coming. In other words, you have to have the courage to stand up against people who twist the scriptures. And they're very clever. And they can come into your church at any time. Or it comes from outside. We'll see that in a moment. Through the radio, through books. And people come into church and say, oh, look at this. This is really good new stuff here. Nothing new. Third, leading. Leading, guiding, directing. Feeding, protecting, guiding. Now, I have talked to hundreds of elderships, hundreds. Every day I get calls. Right, Marilyn? My wife agrees. Every day I get calls, sometimes two a day. Most of these calls are about conflict in a church. And I hear this over and over. Our elders are not leading us. So I, I want you to know that is a big complaint people have. The elders are not leading us. They're maintenance men. They just keep things going. But we don't have any direction we don't know if there's some special things we should do or no. People are looking for good leadership, guidance, direction, fresh vision. So do sheep. They have to be taken from the dry pastures and be taken to the mountains and taken where there's water and there's fresh grass. They have to be led. They have to be guided. They have to be brought back home at night. The fourth Feeding, protecting, leading, and then the general care. The general dealing with disease, dealing with lambing, dealing with shearing. Uh, the many, many uh, aspects of the practical care. That's a pretty big job. To be a shepherd is a pretty big job. 
And of course, people are very quick to let you know you're not doing a good job or we don't like what you're doing. It can be a very cruel job because people can be very cruel, very critical. That's why a lot don't last. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit to make sure He's the one that guided you because you won't last in this job unless the Spirit of God has led you to do this. The overseers are to shepherd the church of God. Peter says the exact same thing in chapter 5. This is a grave responsibility. And I want to just say to the congregation right now, I am not an elder in our church, but I pray for our elders every day. I take an elder, his family, his wife, every day I pray, and I pray for the elders in our other churches. What the elders need from you is your prayers, more than almost anything else. It's interesting, when you're praying for the elders, it's really hard to criticize them. Now, all your elders have problems. I know that because I've got plenty of problems myself. But when you're praying, the Holy Spirit will convict you about your bad attitude, your rotten attitude. The Lord will say, now you need to be a little kinder and understanding. So we have a problem in our assembly right now. It's a very serious problem. It's going to lead to an excommunication. And there's real disagreement over this. And I can guarantee you the elders are going to get a beating. I, I can tell you right now. That's part of the job. You have to deal with some pretty fierce situations. You get families lining up behind their children who are going through a divorce. You've got a, you've got a real tiger by the tail there. Church work is not easy. It can destroy people. They need your prayers. That's the most important thing. Also, look at Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 that we are to know those who are in charge over us and admonish us and work hard among us and we are to love them for their work's sake, for their work's sake. They need your love. They need your prayers. And if you have some criticisms, do it in the right, proper way. Now, the next thing that he uses to motivate first is the Holy Spirit. Pretty serious job when the Holy Spirit gives you a job, right? Holy Spirit motivates you to do this job. That, that should motivate you. God, the Holy Spirit, has put me in this place. So you better do the job. Second, the nature of the flock is the church of God. Church of God. The, the, the elders don't shepherd any normal, uh, ordinary group of people. Uh, this is not moose logs, log. Uh, and, and it's not uh, a business uh, endeavor or a military. It is the assembly of God. The local church does not belong to the elders, does not belong to the apostles or any person or group. It doesn't belong to Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Wesley or John Mills and Darby. It belongs to God. It's his possession. God called this company of people into existence. He is the one who sustains it, provides for it and cares for it. Cares for it more than we'll ever care for it. That's a motivating point. You are shepherding the assembly of God. No more important people on the earth. God's concerned. They'll be with Him forever and ever and ever. Paul, throughout this whole section, is concerned for the education, the protection, and the care of the church of God. This entire sermon is saying to these men, care for God's people. Care for God's flock. You've got a big job. And you will be held accountable for your stewardship. Hebrews 13, 17. You will give an account for those, those who are watching over the souls of the Lord's people. It's no ordinary group of people. It's a worshiping community. It's a singing community. It's a community of gospel truth. All right, now third, the immense value of the church of God. The immense value of the church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. This is the magnitude of the worth of the church of God. In the concise words of David Gooding, with this we touch the mainspring of all true defense and shepherding of the church, the cost at which God bought it. He paid for the church by means of the blood of his own one. Little problem there in translation and little problem there in the, the, the actual manuscript. But that's probably the best idea. 
the blood of his own one, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says the word blood, the blood of his own one, blood, of course, means death, but it means far more. When he says the blood of his own one, he means shed blood. More specifically, he meant sacrificial death. This is the life violently taken from Christ at the cross. It brings up the whole Old Testament system of sacrifice. sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So, all this idea of blood has to deal with sacrificial slaughter. The Old Testament system. He gave the blood of his only, only son. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities like a lamb that is led to slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. That's the idea here. The cost of the church is the sacrificial death of the Son of God. You got any more money than that? He didn't give angels. He didn't give gold. He gave the blood of his own Son in in sacrificial death, atoning death. All that is brought out in this term blood. His blood is the glorious theme of heaven. The angels sing of it. Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain, sacrificial death, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the importance of this job. That's the value of these people. Sometimes, I'm sure you've all been through this, you look out at the congregation, you go, oh, there's so many problems. Some of these people, they drive me crazy. That's why I've lost all my hair. You do, you do. And sometimes you get very discouraged with the people. They're not growing. They all they complain. They've got all these problems. They're going to throw them all on you. Then they complain about you didn't handle it right. Sometimes you have to step back and you have to say, but they were all bought by the blood of Christ. They're the church of God. That doesn't look good here on earth, but that's how God views them. I have to view them that way. I've had to do that many times. Now let me tell you how powerful the blood of Christ is. You ready? You ready for this? The Bible tells us, well, first of all, if you've been around the churches for a while and seen churches, the church is pretty sick. So many problems. Churches are so messed up. And the things they do are just crazy sometimes. And you look at all this and say, what a mess. Messiology. But someday, the Lord is going to present the church to himself, a spotless bride, without a wrinkle or without a stain. How in the world is he going to do that with the likes of us? The blood of Christ. He will cleanse us and present us a spotless bride to himself. That's how powerful the death of Christ is, the cross of Christ, that he could present us this way to himself, glorious forever. Right now, you ever see in the Old Testament when they built Solomon's temple? And when they built Solomon's temple, did you ever read that? There wasn't a sound, not a chisel, not a noise. The stones were put in place. Perfect. Did you ever read that in the Old Testament? But that's not the way it was in the quarry. In the quarry, it's noisy, it's dirty, it's filthy. There's chips and broken things and the workers fight with one another. It's a mess. Well, that's what this world is. We're in the quarry right now. But someday, he's going to present us, each one absolutely perfect, and place us in his temple. Perfect. Only the blood of Christ can do that. You can't do that. So, yes, it's a mess down here. We're in the quarry right now. And there's chips and there's fighting and there's dirt and there's dust. But someday we'll be placed in his temple. Perfect living stones for God's glory. So what Paul is saying here is 
This is the price paid, the blood of his own one, to redeem you and make you his own people. The price we're willing to pay for something tells us it's valuable and God could not have paid more. So these are motivating uh, uh, statements to encourage the elders to protect themselves and protect the flock because the Spirit of God has placed them there. It is God's church. It's not ours. And the price he paid was incalculable. It, it cannot even be uh, uh, properly even understood in this life how he would do so much for us. The cross of Christ will need eternity to get a hold of it. Now, there's a fourth motivating factor, and this brings us to our keeper. Verse, and that is fierce wolves are coming. Be alert. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, this is a motivating reason for, for paying attention to the flock. Major, major exhortation. Okay? Are you with me? We haven't changed subjects here. Where's the last motivating point? Notice Paul says, I know. I know. He doesn't say, I guess, maybe, possibly. I think. Who knows what the future huh? No. He knows the church is in imminent danger when he leaves. He knows that. I know. He saw it in every single church he had. Every single church was invaded by false teachers when he left. He knows they're in imminent danger when he leaves. Notice he doesn't say, man, better days are ahead. Your best days are ahead. Be positive. No, he doesn't say that. It's rather negative what he says. Doesn't say things will get better over time. Just wait. Don't be overly concerned. On the contrary, he shakes and awakes them to what lies ahead. Someone has said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. While Paul is preparing them, this is what you're going to face. I know that. There's no question about it. Fierce wolves are coming. Be prepared. Now, he uses the wonderful metaphor of wolves. This, of course, makes a lot of sense since the church is the flock of God. And he's talking about shepherding. The proverbial enemy, the predator of sheep and goats, is the wolf. These are intruders. They're like a pack of savage wolves intent on devouring the sheep. Wolves are very interesting animals in such a contrast to sheep which really are basically defenseless. They don't have big claws or canines. Wolves are strong and they're cunning hunters and they have bravado. They are persistent and they seem to have boundless energy and they're insatiable and they're merciless. That's what's coming. That's what false teachers are like. They're like wolves. They really are like that. They're so hard to stop. Now, who are these invaders, these intruders called wolves? Well, it may be several things. Paul doesn't directly tell us who they are. I think some of them are government officials because the, the government officials gave the churches some of the, the, the worst uh, persecution. Why would the government? Well, that's because the government and religion was all mixed together. When people were converted to Christianity, it wasn't just they left the Roman government, it's that they left the gods of the Rome. And Rome was very... They're very proud of its gods, Zeus and its whole uh, pantheon of gods. And so when you became a Christian, you dumped the pantheon of gods and you, you, you rejected Roman history. So, yes, the Roman governors and Roman officials did not like Christians. And as we know, in the second century, they killed, killed plenty of them. So probably he's talking about government here. He's probably also talking about the Judaizers. These were the ones who would profess Christ as Messiah, but there's more that you have to do. Uh, you have to be circumcised. Uh, uh, you have to keep certain uh, rituals of the, of the Mosaic law. And so they were works-oriented. Torah-keeping gospel message. You see it in, in Acts 15, through the whole chapter. You see it in the book of Galatians. You see it in almost every epistle. 2 Corinthians, the Judaizers. They invaded the churches with their works-oriented gospel. And then I would say today the secularists would be fierce wolves that infiltrate our churches and our homes with the Internet and the social media and TV and movies and advertising and school books and even some Christian preachers. So we have these outside wolves that come in to 
devour us. But then it gets more frightening, much more frightening. False teachers from within the church, even more subtle and frightening than wolves from without. Paul says, from among your own selves, that's the elders and the church, will arise men speaking. Now, here's the interesting thing. Twisted things. In other words, they take the gospel standard, the gospel message, and and they twist it so that even the most learned scholars can hardly figure out. They're, They're very clever at twisting the truth. They take the truth, they take the Bible, but they twist it and and distort it so that you don't even know what you're dealing with anymore. They're very clever, twisted things. They tie true teachings of Scripture into complex knots. They are slippery creatures who cannot be easily pinned down. They are experts at double talk and diversion. You cannot have, and I know this from personal experience, you cannot have an honest discussion with them because they lack intellectual honesty. They're masters of subtlety and novelty. False teachers mixing truth and error, and they confuse people with half-truths and complex ideas. And like Satan with Jesus in the wilderness, they're good at quoting scripture. Think of the great scholars at some of our Ivy League universities. These are highly intelligent people, write these books, very charismatic, big followings. But they're twisting the scriptures. Many, many examples. I think of liberal theology. Liberal theology, incidentally, is not Christianity. It's a whole different religion because it rejects the person of Christ and the work of Christ. They're offended at the work of Christ. But a number of years ago, John A.T. Robertson wrote a very, very famous book. He was the Bishop of Woolridge. And he wrote this book, and I remember reading it back in the 60s, called Honest to God. It's the number one selling book, Honest to God, by this famous bishop. And what the bishop did when he said Honest to God is he, he told the people the truth of what the bishops of England really believed. People thought they were orthodox historical believers. They were not. And in this book, he said, this is what we believe. And what we believe is there is no God. It's just God talk. He rejected the whole idea of God up there in heaven. There is no God up in heaven. Rather, God must be understood from the existential theology of people like Paul Tillich. Now, who is God? God, get ready for this. Are you ready? God is the ground of our being. Don't think of God up in the sky or a personal being. God is the ground of our being. Now, do you know what that means? Tell me, because I don't know, have an idea what it means, but it sounds so intellectual, doesn't it? God is the ground of our being. Secular people need a secular theology. God reveals himself in the ever-changing culture. So if you wonder how they can accept what we're seeing today in the sexual revolution, is because that's how God reveals himself. Culture is changing. And that's how you get to know God is. They, they were the ones of situational ethics. Ethics is something that changes with the time. His theology is non-theistic. It's post-Christian. Who is God? God remains... As a symbolic term, referring to all that transcends us, providing unity to the universe we live in. And so, they replace the word God with life. They always talk about life, life. Life, that's God. Same, same thing. These are bishops of the Church of England who profess to be Christians. They're nothing of the sort. John Stott was asked from All Souls Church in London. He's dead now. He was asked to debate Bishop Robertson's book, Honest to God. And John Stott said, no, I will not debate him because they're slippery creatures. You can never pin them down. You say this, they say that. I once saw a public debate with Dr. Francis Schaefer, Roosevelt University in Chicago. Dr. Francis Schaefer debating 
the very famous bishop whose name just slipped me. So I saw this debate. Every time Dr. Schaefer would make a very good point, the other man would go off into a tangent into something. You could never pin him down. They're slippery creatures. They're not interested in integrity. They twist, they turn, they distort what is true and right and mislead millions, millions of people. From within the church has come some of the worst enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. What about today with the gospel of wealth and health? Africa is basically health and wealth. The health and wealth gospel has exploded throughout South America and Central America and in other places. Turn your TV on. Look at all the big preachers. Almost all of them health and wealth. God wants you healthy and wealthy. Don't you want to be wealthy? You want to be poor? No, God wants you to be wealthy. That's a twisted gospel. And they go to the Bible and they quote verses here, quote verses there to show you God wants you to be healthy. Take verses from uh, uh, Israel, verses that apply to the nation of Israel and they apply it to us today. How about the new gospel of the sexual revolutionaries? Many Christians are behind this. Or how about the feminist gospel? Many Christians behind that? I, I've argued this for over 30 years. I have a little booklet called Equal Yet Different. I've gone through all the arguments, read all the major books. They twist, they turn, and you don't know if you're coming or going. They're telling you, oh, this Greek word means this, and we've chucked, we've tracked this Greek word down and geek word, and it's all twisted, and it's actually all wrong. But most people don't have enough equipment to know if it's right or wrong. It just sounds good. And I think of many, many of our young people in our Christian colleges and seminaries. They've all gone this way already. It's tragic. Paul said, from among yourselves, people will arise and they're going to speak twisted things, perverted things. Why do they do this? To draw the disciples after themselves. They want disciples. Instead of being disciples of Jesus, they want disciples. What they want is people to give them a lot of money. And there's a lot of stupid people out there that send in millions and millions and millions of dollars. It seems like the more twisted they talk, the more they get followers. And they have millions of followers. I'm not talking thousands. I'm talking millions of followers. You ask any missionary in Africa, they'll tell you most of Africa is health and wealth. Of course, it fits in with their uh, their own ancient religions of the shaman and the promise of the shaman that he'll give you if you give him something, you, you get the blessing from the shaman. fits in with the old culture of Africa anyway. These are twisted things, and it's coming from in the church. There's an excellent book, if you're interested in this, by Benny Hinn's nephew, who I've met several times, a wonderful man of God now, Costa uh, Hinn. He was in all this. He was right there. He saw all this fake and phony stuff. He tells you what it's like. He tells you how they did this fake stuff and how they would spend millions of dollars on themselves, on themselves, on meals, $1,000 meals, $24,000 hotels, just insane He's got a whole book on this. It's a tragic story when you read it. How many millions of people have been misled with a false gospel? Is this any surprise? No. Paul warned us. He said, from within, among yourselves will arise. There should be no surprise here. We have 2,000 years of history. You think of how quickly the church of Jesus Christ turned into a whole priestly and clerical class following the Old Testament and the Roman form of government within 200 years. Couldn't even identify it. And that's why you constantly need reformations and renewals to get back to the Bible. Because we came to get away from the Bible and come up with crazy ideas and new theologies that are not even Christian. And they're called Christian. Think of all the cults that are out there. All the aberrant groups out there. That's why you need elders to guard the church. And that's the charge here. Guard the church. 
Pay attention to the flock. Wolves are coming from without and they're coming from within. You're in a spiritual battle. You cannot be naive or childish. You must know what you're doing. Now, Paul brings us back. He brings us back to his example again in verse 31. Brings us back to the example. Be alert and be ready to act. Therefore, be alert. The Greek verb for alert literally means to stay awake. Do not sleep. Verb is a present tense. It's an imperative verb of command. And so it can be translated. Keep on being alert. Be constantly watchful. The term describes a mental and spiritual attitude of vigilance and preparedness. The opposite is to be oblivious to danger. Not conscious of the reality of predators. Mentally asleep. Preoccupied with activities other than those required at the time of shepherding as a watchman. You cannot guard yourself in God's flock if your eyes are not wide open, your ears are alert, and your brain's engaged to protect from potential danger. Shepherds simply cannot do sleepwalking and be alert at the same time. When we look back at 2,000 years of church history, what we see is a lot of sleeping shepherds. And that's why Baxter wrote his book, The Reformed Pastor. He saw these pastors in England sleep, soundly asleep. They weren't studying. They weren't growing. They weren't going anywhere. Just nice, easy, comfortable life for themselves. And he wrote that book. Wake up. David Gooding says, Unceasing vigilance is the essential requirement in shepherds. Unceasing vigilance. Because the enemy does not go to sleep. You may go to sleep. He does not. Now, what Paul does here is what he's been doing throughout this uh, address. He gives his own personal example. To strengthen his call to be alert. Paul cites his own example. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, he's dead serious about false teachers. Paul's life is a case study in pastoral vigilance in action. Ceaseless admonition. The word admonish means to warn, to advise, and instruct. The word admonish has a corrective influence in a positive, caring way. Not just teaching, not just instruction. It has with it warning, correction, to turn you around. Paul knew the all-too-common problem is the human tendency to become inattentive and to fall asleep spiritually. And so he says, from the first time I arrived in Ephesus, he did not wait till he was leaving to warn him about wolves. He said the entire time, That for three years I did not cease. In other words, the whole time, from the time he's there, time, wolves are coming. You're going to have a battle ahead. You're in enemy-occupied territory. You're not in neutral territory. This is spiritual warfare. And then night and day. In other words, he took every contact, every time he had availability to instruct and warn about false teachers. Then with tears. In other words, a great emotional aspect to this. He had seen some of his churches torn to pieces, like the churches of Galatia. There were many, many tears as he saw the damage done by these false teachers. I think of Christian people I know that have been caught up in this health and wealth and other false teachings. So many today. So many. Can't even keep up with them. And it brings you to tears. These good people uh, led astray by these false teachers. And then it was inclusive to every member, to each and every one. He left no one out. He had an eye for every one of the sheep. And so he tells us here, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish every single one. And I did it with tears. That's pastoral vigilance, pastoral vigilance. How do we do this? How do we stay alert? Well, we stay alert by being awake spiritually to cultural trends, current issues. There's many helps you can get. There's a whole podcast. All of our elders listen to a podcast every day. I listen to the podcast every day, unless I'm just not able to, that keeps us abreast of the cultural changes in America. It's about 20, 25 minutes. I won't mention it publicly, but there's all kinds of uh, online resources 
to help us be awake to what is changing very rapidly in our society. These resources will help us to be more conscientious and knowledgeable and discerning and awake to the culture we live in today, which is a very fast-paced, fast-moving culture, and we are in the midst of a complete and total gender and sexual revolution. No one has ever seen this before in human history. No one has seen this before. And it's coming at us with great force and great power. And if we don't have elders pointed by the Holy Spirit who qualify, we'll just be washed away in the tsunami. A tsunami of secular. Just wash you away. Say goodbye to your young people now as they go out the door. Unless we're there to protect and educate and admonish each one with tears and day and night. Now, none of this makes sense unless there's a real enemy. Paul is not a paranoid delusional. He's not having an imaginary adversary. There are cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There are schemes of the devil. There are fiery darts of the evil one. This is real. Everything Paul is telling you can be picked up in 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. For such men are are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Very religious, by the way. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The great deceiver. Now, if you have any questions about the existence of Satan and his demonic host, then you've got a problem with Jesus Christ because it says of Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. No one understood Satan's strategy better than Jesus Christ. As soon as he started his public ministry, he was driven into the wilderness and Satan had Adam for 40 days and 40 nights to tempt him, to try to make him sin, but he was without sin. He's impeccable. But the devil did everything he could to destroy Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, more than anyone else, tells us who the devil is and what he's about. John 8, 44. He's a liar. And he's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of all lies, philosophical lies, religious lies, economic lies, biblical lies, religious lies. No mincing of words with Paul and with Jesus. But not only is he the father of lies, which, by the way, we know Satan's strategy. Fill the world with lies. Just fill it with lies. Every false teacher you ever met is just full of lies. The other thing is a murderer from the beginning. He loves killing people. You ever wonder why all these wars, 20th century, 125 million people killed? That was Satan. He loves killing people. One of his favorite jobs. He's a murderer and he's a liar. He's the father of all lies. That's why we should never participate in lies. Under any circumstances do we participate in lies. We are people of the truth. God is a God of truth. We're his people. We're to imitate him. We are to be people of truth. Jesus confronted the evil one and defeated him. And someday he will cast Satan and all of his demonic angels into the lake of fire forever and ever. They will never again bother the universe. Jesus is already victorious. But right now we live in enemy-occupied territory. We're in the quarry. And it can be a real mess. It can be a real mess down here. But we have to be faithful. We have to do our duty that God has given us. No matter how hard it is. And it is hard at times. You want to quit at times. You say, is this worth it? Well, it was worth it for God to give his son to die for us. I mean, he must think it's worth it. Now, who are we? Who are we to think we're, we're smarter than God? We are in a great war. We are to guard the sheep. We're to God guards people. Whoever he gives us to guard and to care for and teach is very important. There's no little people, no little places, Francis Schaeffer said. So be alert, be awake, be vigilant, be alive, fully alive. Don't be a sleepy Christian. There's no time to be a sleepy Christian because you will be washed away by the secular tsunami. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of warning and words of truth. Words of truth. We know these words are true. Let every man be a liar and you be the God of truth. 
Help us to do our jobs. Help us to be faithful. Help us to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. May we take very seriously the work of protecting the flock of God. The job the Holy Spirit gave us to do. To care for the church of God. Purchased with precious blood. Stand against fierce wolves. False teachers from within the church. Speaking twisted things. To draw away their own, their own people and their own disciples. Help us to be alert, remembering the great example of Paul, how he protected the church the entire time he was with them. Help us to be like him, follow his example. Protect this church from the evil one. Protect this church from outside sources and from inside division, false teaching. Let us not be naive. Let us be diligent and vigilant. In the name of our Lord, amen. Amen. Tomorrow morning we'll try to finish this chapter.